What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, September 17th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Maddie? I am doing so dang well. I uh, was at a bachelor party this weekend and uh, did not get much sleep, but right now, I am in my element. This is the pod. This is the planet today. I am excited. Rearing and ready to go. Yeah, I've, I've had a good week too. I, uh, I bought a bike last week, so I am, uh, I've been talking the talk on this podcast for a couple months now, and now I'm ready to walk the walk. I'm going more carbon neutral. Um, I'm also selling my car, so if any listeners want a car, uh, reach out to me. It's a beautiful vehicle too. Get on it, folks. Yeah, just uh, happy to upgrade it and, you know, not produce any emissions when I ride around New York City on my bike now. <laughs> right on. Saving the planet. All right, let's get into the show. to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to read another listener review on Apple Podcasts as a thank you for supporting our show. All right, so Lemon Cookies 85 titled their review, Planet Today, Planet Tomorrow, Planet Forever, and says, can't believe they got a professional arsonist on the show. Really, really <laughs> love the interview too. I'd give it six out of five stars if I could. Yeah, so Nick and I know who Lemon Cookies is, but we will respect their anonymity and Lemon Cookies, we're glad you enjoyed our interview with Ryan Burns of Bartlett Tree Experts, although he is not an arsonist. Um, we also hope that you liked today's interview, too. If you haven't already, please leave a review on the show so that we can give you a shout out on our show as a thank you for listening. If you left us an early review, don't be afraid to do it again. The show has evolved and your review might evolve as well. Seriously, that was our last unread review that we have, so please leave a review. <laughs> Otherwise, next week, we are not thanking anyone. The ratings and reviews help us get on charts and help the show get noticed by promoters. So it's one click for you that really makes our day over here. Please give it a shot. Yeah, please do, because otherwise I have to tell my mom to leave like a 10th review. <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> All right, let's kick things off here with our quick hits. So the first of our back-to-back -back recycling stories was written by Kuroko Tabuchi and Winston Choi Chagrin of the New York Times. It's titled, California aims to ban recycling symbols on things that aren't recyclable. Yeah, so uh, like Nick said, back-to-back -back recycling stories coming your way. I guess we can officially dub this Recycling Week here on the planet today. Woo! California State Assembly passed a bill last week that bans companies from using those familiar three arrows on their products unless they can prove the material is recycled in most Californian communities and is used to make new products. Recycling is a bit of an issue in the United States because, and I'm generalizing here, we all recycle a lot, but the problem is so many people do not recycle correctly. Paper and metal are generally easy to recycle, but the EPA estimates that less than 10% of plastic consumed is actually recycled. Now, part of that is definitely because people don't rinse out their plastics before throwing them in the recycling bin, but a lot of it falls onto the fact that some people just aren't sure what's recycled. The different grades of plastics are not recycled in all communities, so the little numbers that appear in the recyclable logo are actually really important. Maine and Oregon passed laws this summer to improve and simplify their state's recycling systems and legislations pending in New York that would ban producers from adding misleading claims related to recycling on their products. The executive director of the National Stewardship Action Council, Heidi Sanborn, is quoted in this article as saying the recycling symbol is, quote, subconsciously telling the people buying things, you're environmentally friendly 
despite lying to the public. In other words, people see that symbol and they think, okay, cool, I can consume what's in this plastic and it's not a big deal because the container will be completely reused. When in reality, that's not the case. Some people would definitely rethink their products that they purchase if they knew they were just contributing to landfalls at the end. The authors mention that Pete Keller, who's the vice president of recycling and sustainability at Republic Services, said in an interview that more than a fifth of the material his company possesses nationwide is non-recyclable garbage. Republic Services is one of the largest waste and recycling companies in the country, and they're only running at 80% efficiency at best. Opponents of the bill stated that California should wait for the nationwide labeling standards and that this won't lead to companies investing in technologies to recycle plastics that end in landfills. Supporters say that tougher rules would create an incentive for manufacturers to invest in recyclable packaging. The bill covers all consumer goods and packaging sold in California, with some exclusions that are already covered by existing laws. So this is big news. Recycling can be difficult at times because you have to look at the bottom of the item, check the number, and see whether or not your municipality recycles that grade of plastic. You also have to get rid of the food scraps in the plastic container so that you don't contaminate the entire collection. Streamlining this process and making it easier sounds like a very good thing to me. Although I'd like to remind everyone that reduce, reuse, and recycle is a hierarchy and not three equal parts. Reduce your consumption, reuse what you can, and then recycle what you can. Yeah, and I'm going to put myself on the hot seat here because I still feel like I don't know how to recycle properly. Like from what you just mentioned, I feel like I've not been following that uh, well enough. And maybe if we had like, I don't know, maybe the government should put it like uh, put out like a video of George Clooney being like, here's how you recycle. Hey, I'm George Clooney. If you recycle correctly like me, you will also age gracefully and still be kind of hot even as you get older. (laughs) (laughs) I always get flack from my girlfriend for thinking George Clooney's like a stud and I don't understand it. Is that a, is that a contentious topic? I thought like that's universally agreed upon that George Clooney is our salt and pepper king. (laughs) He is by far. (laughs) All right. So our next quick hit is uh, another recycling story from ABC news. And it is Taco Bell wants you to send back your used sauce packets so it can reuse them. What? Yeah, this is a story that's very near and dear to me. Um, and personal anecdote for anyone out there who thinks that I really have my stuff together. You know, Matt, you're 26 and you're writing and hosting a podcast with your friend. And, you know, <laughs> here's where I let you know that you, dear listener, are wrong. <laughs> In high school, at one point, I used to do some summer work with my dad and uh, my friend Eric. And after work, Eric and I would go to Taco Bell to get the $1 burritos and $1 Mountain Dew Baja Blast. It got to the point where we walked in one day and the cashier remembered us and asked if we wanted the same order as last time. (laughs) So my first experience being a regular at a local business, and it happened to be Taco Bell, which is either very sad or very impressive, depending on how you look at it. Uh, needless to say, Eric and I took a little break from Taco Bell after, uh, we got exposed like that. (laughs) So I'm very glad to hear that Taco Bell is uh, on this big sustainability kick because I've definitely spent more than a couple bucks at their establishments over the years. More than a thousand dollars at their establishment. Oh God, I hope not. (laughs) Anyway, Taco Bell estimates that 8 billion pounds of used sauce packets go into landfills every year. So they're rolling out a nationwide program for customers to send used sauce packets back through the mail through a company called TerraCycle, which is based out of New Jersey and helps big businesses become more green. Customers would need to sign up for a TerraCycle account, collect their empty sauce packets in a recyclable container, print a free shipping label from their website, and then ship that box back through UPS. For anyone like me who thought, wait, why don't they just have a drop-off center in the stores? A majority of Taco Bell's customers use drive-through or to-go orders, and their pilot program to test this idea found that customers preferred using the mail. A study published in Science estimates that 710 million metric tons of plastic will pollute the environment by 2040 if the same number of sauce packets continue to be thrown away each year. So this might not sound like a huge deal at first, but upon hearing that number, we can totally see why Taco Bell wants to focus on cutting it down. 
Taco Bell hopes that packaging used by its customers will be fully recyclable, compostable, or reusable across all of its stores by 2025, and that this is a big step in their sustainability goals. The article also explains that last year, when Taco Bell got rid of its Mexican pizza, they did so because the packaging amounted to 7 million pounds of paperboard per year. Taco Bell plans to promote the program in-store using signage and QR codes in their restaurants. Nick, what are your thoughts and what is your go-to order from Taco Bell? Oof. Um, my thoughts are, this is awesome. At first I was kind of like, okay, this is unsettling. Like I'm going to put sauce packets in the mail. <laughs> yeah. And just like, like a little envelope like what with a, used sauce. Yeah. Like what, what's my mailman going to have like, like Diablo sauce all over his fingers. That doesn't sound great to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it still is an awesome idea. 700 million metric tons of plastic is absurd. Uh, and my go-to order is a Crunchwrap Supreme, and then I get like a little taster off the dollar menu. Like I'll take like a little, I don't know, like a little chicken, um, what is it, like a chicken wrap, something like that. I'm a big Crunchwrap Supreme guy, but I always uh, substitute the ground beef with refried beans, and I also like the cheesy gordita crunch, same deal, refried beans. Oh, love um, it. This story also reminded me of, um, I know a lot of Ben and Jerry's scoop shops have compostable spoons and containers and then the plastic that they put over it if you get a cup is completely recyclable. So it's kind of cool when you see corporations that have this large scale of consumption and you know them putting out compostable spoons and recyclable sauce packets, that makes a much bigger difference than just one individual person choosing to use a metal straw. Yeah, totally agree. It's It makes a lot more change than any one man can. Yeah, and it's like keep doing what you're doing because you're helping. This just helps a lot more because of the number of people that it's going to impact. Yeah, 100%. And Ben and Jerry's in general is just always on the right side of things for some reason. So keep it up, folks. Agreed. <laughs> All right, so keeping up our weekly tradition of good green news from Europe each week, this article is titled, Netherlands Officials Tell Shell to Stop Its Ads Greenwashing Carbon Neutral Fuel by Darna Noor. Before we discuss this, I just wanted a definition of greenwashing for anyone who's curious out there. Greenwashing is disinformation by an organization that creates a public image of environmental responsibility. Nick and I reviewed after the spill for our September documentary review, which we do for the first episode of every month if you're just joining us. And... That documentary really got our blood boiling because we saw BP constantly putting out commercials and ads saying how much good they were doing for the environment to right the wrongs of their own oil spill. That was a perfect example of greenwashing. In the Netherlands, officials ruled that Shell cannot do something similar to what BP was doing in the US. Shell had been running ads claiming that customers can pay for carbon offsets to make their fuel consumption carbon neutral. The issue is that Shell has no proof that this was correct. Shell has two weeks to appeal the decision, and then the court will publish its final decision on whether or not the ads can continue to run. The official filing calls out a Shell ad campaign that tells its customers to pay an extra cent per liter of fuel, and that money will go towards forest conservation and tree planting projects in an effort to cancel out the carbon pollution from driving a car. One example that is listed in the filing states that Shell pledged to use the money to protect forests in Peru from logging, but the forest was not even being logged in the years before Shell began protecting it. Lisa Van Langnen, one of the students who filed the complaint against Shell, stated, quote, Forests are absorbing increasingly less carbon, and the forest could burn down. Shell wants to compensate for climate damage that is 100% definite with a measure that they cannot know for sure will work or for how long it will work. This comes as part of a string of decisions by the Netherlands courts that have been holding fossil fuel producers accountable. This summer, a Dutch court ruled that Shell had to slash its carbon pollution by 45% by 2030 and brought BP and Chevron to court for their greenwashing ads. The Netherlands is one of the leaders in issues like this and has had a ban on tobacco advertising for decades. If it's bad for their people, their government prioritizes that over business. It's worth noting what Noor closes the article with. Going after Big Oil's advertising will not end the fossil fuel economy by itself, but the industry has used ads and marketing to maintain its social license. Ending their ability to make false claims or advertise at all 
could play a role in the clean energy transition. Yeah, one thing I've learned from this show is that oil companies will say and do anything that they possibly can in order to lessen the reality of climate change. Like, it doesn't matter. They will say and do whatever it takes uh, to advance their agenda. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I don't know if any of the listeners out there watch South Park, but there's an episode, I believe, um, that the the company that they're arguing with is a cable company. And every time one of the parents in the show calls to complain about something, the customer service reps are just like, oh, we're sorry. And then they do nothing <laughs> to fix it. And I feel like that's just been the oil industry for years where it's like, hey, yeah, we've been doing some bad things and we're really sorry about it. You forgive us, don't you? <laughs> like, what? No. And then they're like, but you need your cars. <laughs> and this whole EV phase, it's just a phase you're going through. You'll come back to us. It's like, no, we won't. <laughs> we see a better future on the horizon and we're going to go for it. Yeah. They're in the burning building and they're just like taking every which way they can out. Relationship advice from me and Nick here. Leave your toxic relationship. And that includes your relationship with fossil fuels, baby. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) All right. So next up is Tim Sylvia of PV Magazine USA. And he wrote, Illinois House passes clean energy bill with some big solar winds. Almost a year ago, Illinois solar incentive program ran out of funding, which made it more difficult and expensive to create solar arrays throughout the state. As of Monday... SB 2408 passed both houses of Illinois state legislature, which could save their solar market and create more clean energy jobs. It also includes bailouts for the state's nuclear energy facilities. The bill, which is known as the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, passed by a margin of 83 to 33. Vote Solar said the bill, quote, represents the most robust energy justice bill in the nation and sets new precedent for how states can help navigate a just transition to a renewable energy economy that puts disadvantaged communities at the helm. The article lists several provisions of the bill, including an immediate restart of solar incentives, potentially protecting thousands of solar jobs and unlocking billions in savings for Illinois' family and businesses, a 350% increase in the pace of renewable energy development. So the state is now on target to reach 40% renewable energy by 2030 and 100% by 2050. A 500% increase to $50 million annually in funding for the Illinois Solar for All program, which unlocks higher solar savings for low-income residents. $80 million in annual funding for programs that support workers and contractors from disadvantaged communities. And the bill also aims to improve the transportation sector by creating planning processes for electrification and providing rebates for electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging infrastructure. The Natural Resource Defense Council pointed out that this will be the first Midwestern state to reach 100% carbon-free energy and calls the bill, quote, the nation's most comprehensive and equitable clean energy legislation. This is a big step for their clean energy transition, and it also addresses societal inequity, which is something that Nick and I have talked about a lot this summer and will continue to talk about on this show until it gets addressed. Yeah, I'm really happy to see this bill pass, and I'm excited to see how this increases the renewable energy output of Illinois and also boosts the economy of lower-income communities and the state as a whole. Nick, a few weeks ago, you asked me about nuclear energy, and I saw a comment on Reddit where I actually found this article, r slash renewable energy, if anyone wants to sub to that, Um, and it summed up nuclear pretty well. Nuclear energy currently accounts for roughly 50% of Illinois electricity. The rest is gas and coal, with roughly 8% from renewables, solar and wind since Illinois is flat. If renewables represent 40% of electricity in 2030, and the level of nuclear remains constant, this would imply a 90-plus percent low-carbon grid for the state. So basically, if this bill passed and nuclear was closed out immediately, we would see an increase in the use of gas and coal until the state gets to its 100% renewable energy target by 2050. So they're kind of using nuclear as a good transition until eventually they can go 100% renewable, clean solar and wind. Yeah, that's shocking that nuclear energy is accounting for 50% of Illinois' electricity. I wouldn't I wouldn't expect it to be even half of that. 
Um, and I wonder what it is actually for New York. Yeah, it's just so efficient. So it produces a ton of electricity without needing much input. Um, so yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I don't know offhand what New York is, uh, but you know, with Indian Point closing soon, which for anyone not from New York, that's uh, the nuclear facility that's, I don't know, probably 35 miles, 40 miles from New York City. Um, that's closing or closed. And that's definitely going to put a hit into how much of the state's electricity comes from nuclear. But yeah, we can definitely look into that after the show. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so our last one of the week comes from Michael Greshko of National Geographic. And it's titled, Mammoth Elephant Hybrids Could Be Created Within the Decade. Should they? We have done a lot of quick hits on this show. This might be the one that I am most excited to talk about. And if it wasn't an interview week, and I didn't want to talk about this right away, this probably would have been our feature story of the episode. Um, I love the story. I loved the writing of Michael Greshko. And sometimes environmentalism and scientific advances intersect in really interesting places. And this is definitely one of them. A geneticist from Harvard named George Church has co-founded a company that is looking to engineer an elephant that resembles woolly mammoths. His company, known as Colossal, seeks to combine woolly mammoth DNA with Asian elephants to create a hybrid that can live in Arctic climates. Woolly mammoths went extinct roughly 400 years ago and lived in prehistoric regions of Africa, Europe, and North America. They appeared in cave paintings in France, Spain, and Britain, and were part of tribal legends in North America and Siberia. The last population of woolly mammoths is believed to have lived on Wrangell Island in the Arctic Ocean. The last common ancestors of woolly mammoths and Asian elephants lived 6 million years ago, but these two species still share more than 99.9% of their DNA. Because the elephant genome is so large and complex, that 0.1% difference in their DNAs means that there are more than 1 million individual differences between the two species that scientists will need to work out for this to work. Wow. Yeah, it's... Like when I when I read that at first, I was like, oh, 99.9%. So like they're kind of similar. I mean, what's the big deal? It should be pretty easy to bring them back. And then when I read just like how complex their genome is, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, we got some work to do. Here. <laughs> yeah, come on, scientists. It's easy. 99.9% of their DNA. Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so Colossal's long-term goal is to use these hybrid mammoth elephants to convert the mossy tundra of today's Arctic into the grassy steppes that were found there in the Pleistocene epoch. That ended about 11,700 years ago and featured multiple ice ages. A steppe is a dry, grassy plain that occurs between the tropics and the polar regions. Some scientists believe that if done at a high enough scale, reverting the mossy tundra to grassy steppes could reduce future climate change by slowing the melting of Arctic permafrost. As a refresher, permafrost is a thick layer of soil that remains frozen throughout the year and stores a great deal of organic material, which contains carbon. If the permafrost melts, the vegetation frozen in it will decompose and release more carbon into the atmosphere. George Church does not view this as a reintroduction of the woolly mammoth, but rather the de-extinction of some of its genes. He says, quote, the goal is really a cold resistant elephant that is fully interbreedable with the endangered Asian elephant. Church had plans to bring the mammoth or a mammoth hybrid to life for years. And Colossal's co-founder, Ben Lam says, quote, most of the science has been solved. They just needed that funding and focus. That being said, Greshko writes that Colossal's plans rely on technologies that are unproven in elephants. The company is predicting that their first hybrid calf is six years away at best, and a self-sustaining herd could take decades to establish. Church was interviewed by the New York Times in 2008 and had his idea for sequencing the woolly mammoth genome even then. At the time, it was more of a how do we solve this sort of thing and not a, we are ready to do this. Let's make it happen effort. <laughs> Church began to work with a company known as Revive and Restore and specifically two of their members, Stuart Brand and Ryan Phelan. Phelan talks about de-extinction as quote, genetic rescue and says it's a quote, 
story about hope and being able to repair some of the damages that humans have caused over the centuries. It's not nostalgia. It's really about increasing biodiversity. Mammoths are believed to have been essential to maintaining the Arctic's grasslands by knocking down trees, stirring up earth, and fertilizing the soil. Their feet even let Arctic chill get further down into the permafrost because of the weight of each step pushing down the snow and the ice. To be short, they kept the Arctic grasslands productive and thriving. This research has taken off recently due to the funding that Lom mentioned earlier. Church's lab had been working on a budget of $10,000 per year thanks to a $100,000 donation from Peter Thiel and support of Revive and Restore. The people working in the lab were mainly part-time volunteers. Colossal now has a $15 million budget thanks to investment from Silicon Valley. Colossal's funding helps support Church's lab and their own lab with the help of scientific advisors, including two who specialize in elephants or mammoths and two bioethicists who study genome editing. I think the investment in Silicon Valley was Elon Musk because he's like, I just want to see Manny from Ice Age come back. <laughs> it's definitely one of those things where he was like, I have more money than I know what to do with. Let's invest in something funny. He's <laughs> just going to tweet about like mammoth coin next. <laughs> Michael Hoffreeder of the University of Potsdam studies mammoths and other Pleistocene era animals. And Fritz Valrath of Oxford studies modern elephant behavior. R. Altacharo of the University of Wisconsin at Madison and S. Matthew Lau of New York University both specialize in genome editing. So Colossal now seems to have the funding, legitimate advisory board, and passion to move this forward. But until the technologies are proven to work, this is no guarantee. Colossal is aiming to establish at least 60 mammoth genes in their hybrid animals, including the mammoth's fat deposits, ability to hold oxygen in its blood at low temperatures, and of course, their shaggy, furry coat. We all love it. Yeah, that's kind of like, what's the point? If you're going to try to bring back the woolly mammoths, you better make them woolly, brother. <laughs> it's insane that they can go in and be like, okay, let's make sure it can hold oxygen in its blood like at low temperatures. It's just so weird that you can like edit like that. Yeah. One of the main issues that Colossal may run into is that Asian elephants are endangered and using surrogates can be dangerous. To avoid this, Colossal plans to develop an artificial elephant womb. Greshko writes that past experiments with lambs and mice have shown that artificial wombs can support fetuses for up to four weeks or support five-day-old embryos for up to six days but no artificial womb has been used through a complete gestation period. Now, uh, earmuffs to all of our, our mom listeners out there, because this is going to be painful to hear, but an elephant's gestation period is close to two years, Oof. and their calves are over 200 pounds at birth. Oh, my so, goodness. <laughs> yeah, a uh, lot of respect for all the human moms out there and also for the elephant moms out there. <laughs> Either way, pulling this off successfully is going to be no small feat. After birth, the issue of socialization comes up. How will the first mammoth-elephant hybrid integrate into herds, learn how to survive in the Arctic, and generally be cared for? Elephants are very intelligent animals that live for a long time and maintain complex societies. So this is closer to moving as a high schooler and trying to integrate into a school with very defined cliques and social status than it is to bringing your dog to the dog park and letting your dog play with other breeds that are generally pretty accepting of newcomers. Like, hey, let's sniff some butts and chase some tails. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read an excerpt from the article here because it brings up an important issue of land use and societal inequity. Quote, if Colossal's full vision were ever to be realized, it would require rewilding millions of square miles of Arctic tundra to affect the global climate. The scale of these proposed changes would create thorny problems around land use, the effects on existing Arctic wildlife, and global governance. And what effects would there be on the approximately 180,000 Inuit in Russia, Canada, the United States, and Greenland, the peoples most directly at risk in a stressed, rapidly changing Arctic? Colossal claims that there will be no impact on the indigenous tribes that currently live in the areas at risk. And that its highest priority is conservation of all species, including humans. 
My question is how? I just don't see a way to guarantee that rewilding areas of the Arctic means that elephant-mammoth hybrids will exclusively stay in the rewilded areas. Like, you gotta think that the mammoths will interact with people at some point, right? Whether it's competing for food, land, or just drinking the same water. I have my doubts that this won't impact Inuit people. You should definitely check out the full article for more because it's an extremely interesting topic and Nick and I obviously did not go over everything in our short summary and discussion. It also brings up a very important debate. Should we bring back species that have gone extinct and where do we draw the line? Yeah, I I wonder like, is there a reason, like almost like a Charles Darwin, like survival of the fittest reason as to why species have gone extinct? And, you know, maybe our earth is too different to bring back, you know, some of these species, uh, you know, by genetic modification and stuff like that. So that's a really good point, Nick. And, you know, I I like the idea of potentially bringing back species from extinction if it's to combat the loss of biodiversity. But I think it should only apply to animal species that have gone extinct because of humans. So like through deforestation and poaching, as opposed to, you know, animals that just went extinct well, I don't want to bring back dinosaurs. Like, I don't want this to turn into Jurassic Park. <laughs> as cool as that would be, we have, what, six movies now explaining why it's a bad idea. So, <laughs> you know, if it's something like that, maybe let's not do this. But if it's something like a pollinator species of bumblebee that goes extinct and pollinators are super important to pretty much every ecosystem in the world... I see the merits of bringing back something like that, especially if it's, you know, maybe it's extinct because of pesticides that we created. Yeah, I don't need Jeff Goldblum coming back and being like, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Last point I wanted to make, I think de-extinction is cool, but my concern is would this lead to people caring less about protected endangered species? Like I, I think of it from a video game perspective where Growing up, I definitely played the games a lot more loose when I had like five lives left. But when you're on your last life and you don't want to lose and restart the whole level, that's sort of what I see this becoming where there aren't multiple lives and I wouldn't want scientists and people in general to start treating it like there are. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. And I think that's something that like would happen no matter what. Because ultimately, if you do know you have like a uh, a backup or a buffer or whatever it is, it's just like such human reaction to like just let things like that's why we leave things to the last minute. You know, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Get ourselves out of our own mistakes. But all right, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we will feature my interview with Kristen Pruitt. Nick, I bought a new mask today uh, for going on the subway on my way to work and wearing into stores. And I was a repeat customer for this brand. Um, No free ads, but they make pretty good masks. So they sent me a performance headband as a thank you. And at first I was really excited. And then I was like, why am I going to rock a headband when I can just bring my Vala Alta on my runs? Oh, Matt, it's an all-encompassing every use handkerchief yeah and i'm gonna keep sweating and i'm gonna keep wiping my forehead with the alta val alta's everyday handkerchief is a high performance daily use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact made in the united states from sustainably sourced irish linen capturing the materials historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Go get them, guys. Valaalta.com. Wipe the sweat from your brow. All 
Planet today, folks. And now we're going to air Matt's interview with Kristen Pruitt. Today on the Planet Today, we are joined by Kristen Pruitt. Kristen and I met at the University of Delaware, where we both played Ultimate Frisbee for the UD men's and women's Ultimate teams. She is quite the chef, and she has some environmental career experience, just maybe not in the traditional sense of the, the word. So we wanted to have her on to tell her story. So Kristen Pruitt, welcome to the planet today. Hey Matt, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. Of course, we're happy to have you. Figured you would have some uh, some cool stories and some cool perspectives for the listeners. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, so I guess we can just let everyone know before when we were trying to schedule this interview, we kind of had to push it back because we were waiting for you to get back from Acadia National Park. So why don't you tell us about that? How was the trip? It was awesome. Yeah. Um, I was with my family, our yearly family vacation. So this year was Acadia. Um, it was my second time there and hopefully not my last, but we did the typical like beehive hike and Cadillac mountain sunset. So all the fun stuff though. Nice. Beehive is definitely one of my favorite hikes. Yeah. You get up to the top and I don't know, just the bird's eye view of, I went in the fall. So all the foliage was so cool. It's like New England on steroids. Yeah. What other parks have you been to? Um, so I wish I could say I've been to a lot more, but I've actually only been to three. Um, Acadia, Grand Teton, and Yellowstone. Nice. Yeah, and we will definitely get into Yellowstone a bit. Yeah, I guess we can dive into that right now, actually. So you had a summer job there. It was 2019, right? That- yep, right after I graduated. Okay, thought so. Um, I, bad friend alert here, I actually have no idea what you were doing when you were working in Yellowstone. I just knew that you worked there. So tell me everything you want to tell me about working at Yellowstone. Sure. Yeah. So not many people knew what I did. When I, when I say I worked at Yellowstone, they thought I was a park ranger, which is actually a hard job to get. So I was definitely not that. Um, but I just applied, um, when I was close to graduating from UD, um, it's a company called, it's a concession company called Zantera. So they have hotels and restaurants and gift shops and all that kind of stuff in a bunch of different national parks around the country. Um, so most people that know, I think that Yellowstone's pretty big, so it's broken up into different locations. So I was in the Mammoth Hot Springs location, which is at the north entrance, like right, it's like 10 minutes from um, Gardner, Montana. Um, And so my job was, I was a safety and security guard. Surprise. (laughs) Um, I was not the muscle of the the, the place. I wasn't breaking up fights or anything, but... um, But you could have if they needed it. Oh yeah, totally, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but basically I just made sure that like the hotel was safe, um, the building, the dorm buildings for employees were safe. Um, and by that, I just mean nothing was broken, damaged, fire extinguishers were working, smoke detectors were working, things like that. If anyone got locked out of their dorms, we'd be the ones to slip them in. If tourists were getting too close to animals like elk, elk were all over the Mammoth Hot Spring location, um, we'd have to kind of that, that'd be a fight we'd break up, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, I don't bet that yeah. happens all the time, yeah. too. People can be pretty um, unaware. They think elk are just friendly deer that you can pet, and it's not a petting zoo. They're actually yeah. dangerous when they want to be. So um, They're huge, too. I, I saw one when I was in Yellowstone. I was just blown away because I'd never seen one in person. And yeah. I, just, I, don't, I don't think that videos and pictures really do them justice. They don't because they, they do look like deer, honestly. And then you, you see them close up and you're like, that is twice the size. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. That's basically what I did. It was kind of an all around job because if, if people didn't know who to call, they'd call security. So um, we'd, we'd pick up the odd ends here and there. It's kind of just fun. doing general operations for the park, making sure everything runs smoothly and making sure yeah. people don't get too close to the animals. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get to explore a lot while you were there or was it kind of, um, I'm, I'm sure that can get pretty tiring. Did you have enough oh, time no. afterwards to adventure? I was there. I was there to adventure. I was, the, the job is more so the opportunity to, to be able to live there and then explore. Whereas a lot of people go there for a week for vacation and you got to pay to do that this way I was getting paid. Um, so I luckily had my car there. Um, and with the security position, and I worked four 10 hour shifts. So then I had three days off. So during my three days, I was hiking 
probably most days. Um, so That's I definitely awesome. had a, a good chance to, yeah, to explore the park and, and do a lot of hikes. Cause as I said, it's big. A lot of people only get to stay on the kind of figure eight loop road that, you know, you get off at a parking lot and go out and see some hot springs, get back in your car, drive to the next location. And you see the most popular stuff, which is understandable if you're only there for a few days, but it was really, I, I was very lucky to be able to see more than just that and do a lot of cool hikes. Yeah, that sounds great. So if, if you were going to give one of the listeners here a tip, let's say they only have a weekend and they're only going for a short trip, what would you say is your number one spot where it's, you, you got to go here and you're missing out if you don't? Oh, I'm so bad at decision making <laughs> and picking just one thing. Okay. I will say if somebody's asking my favorite hike, um, I would probably say Avalanche Peak. Um, it's more on the south east side of the park like by the lake location um but i went with one of my best friends and and we were two of maybe like six or seven people that we passed on that hike and there was snow on the ground so at some points there was no trail because we must have been the first group there that day um but the views at the top were absolutely gorgeous and because everything was snow covered all the other mountains that we were looking at were also just gorgeous and it's not a long hike it's only maybe like four miles i think but it's it's a hard hike so i would i would recommend lake so if you're looking for maybe a little bit of an easier hike or less treacherous or just closer to the mammoth hot springs location um i did bunsen peak a bunch um especially one time that was pretty memorable was it was a night hike so we walked up as the sun was setting um and so that was a really pretty view and then and then we went back down um, but I've got lots of hike recommendations if ever, if anyone needs anything. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I, um, I think the only part about yellow somewhere I was a little underwhelmed. It's probably my favorite park I've been to just cause I loved all the wildlife. But when I went to old faithful, we waited for, I don't even remember how long. And then it finally went off and we were like, you know, I've seen videos of that. What you see is kind of what you get here. But then the rest of the park just blew me away. <laughs> So I a hundred percent agree. Um, it's a little overrated and I wouldn't say don't go to it. Cause you know, you kind of have to, if you're there. Definitely but see it once. Yeah. You can see it once and move on. There are a lot of other hot springs and geysers that are a lot more beautiful. Um, another big popular one is grand prismatic hot spring. And that's the, the rainbow one that you see pictures. Yeah. That one I would say is actually really worth it. And there's two ways you can get to it. One is from the boardwalks kind of, where you'd get along the road and you're, you're standing right on top of it practically. And then there's another short hike. I believe the, uh, um, ferry, ferry falls, um, gets you to, um, a more bird's eye view of grand prismatic, which is really pretty. Yeah. I walked through there and I just remember being so blown away and we were trying to take pictures <laughs> and for as good as an iPhone camera is, it just, mm -hmm. there's no way you can capture just all the different colors. And that was so breathtaking. Yeah, so definitely would recommend going there. I guess just last question before we kind of switch gears away from Yellowstone. I'm sure there's people who are thinking that sounds like such a cool experience for a summer. I would love to work at a national park, um, but maybe they only know about working as a park ranger, which like you said, is such a tough job to get. And maybe they don't want to work in a gift shop or in a restaurant. How can people get involved with the park service in a position that's kind of more similar to what you found? Sure. So as I mentioned, I worked with a company called Zantara and there are other companies like Zantara. I know within Yellowstone, there's also a company called Delaware North. And so you will find those typical restaurant positions, being a waiter, waitress, kitchen staff, stuff like that, gift shops. Um, other jobs that Zantara has, as I was, staff, um, safety and security guard. Um, but they also have housekeeping, they have laundry, you know, nothing glamorous, but again, just ways that get you into the park and you're making money. The housing and stuff is relatively cheap. Um, another way, another route someone could go would be where my friend Ange ended up. She worked at Yellowstone forever and they're a nonprofit. Um, they sell memberships and they also do have a gift shop, but it's, um, just a way to support the park. And she also, where she's working right now is 
actually with NPS, the National Park Service in Zion. She did get a permanent position, but I do believe they also have seasonal positions um, where she's in the ticket booth. So kind of in the guest services um, department where she's checking people into their campsites, selling passes to get into the park, helping navigate traffic, stuff like that. Um, so seasonal work is definitely the way to go if you just want something fun, short. You know, I did it for three months. Um, a full season at Yellowstone is April to November, and then their winter season picks up in December. Um, so there are definitely ways to do it. And like I said, Zantara is not the only place to do it. You can do it with other concessioners. You can also do it in other parks. Zantara's in, off the top of my head, I know they're in Zion, Glacier, um, Death Valley, and I believe the Grand Canyon. So you definitely have a lot of options if you're not cool. into Yellowstone. That's awesome. And uh, side note, congrats to your friend Ange on the permanent position <laughs> at Zion. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's pretty excited about it. And hopefully I can add that to my list next year. We're planning on visiting her. Um, so hopefully that can be added to my list of national parks. <laughs> Zion is so cool. Um, I, yeah. I hiked the Narrows there and the whole thing, like you get, I think it's maybe a quarter mile where it's dry and then you're in a, a riverbed the whole way. It's so cool. And oh, your feet yeah. get soaked, but it's so worth it. I've seen all those pictures. It looks absolutely gorgeous. And then the other one, which is like a really dangerous one, but Angel's Landing. Did you do that one? Yeah. Um, yeah. I wasn't sure I was going to tell this story, but you know, I'll be upfront with everyone. I chickened out at the end. There's one part uh, where yeah. um, you're, you're holding on to this like chain link. Um, I don't really know. I guess rope is the wrong term, but just picture a lot of chains and you're holding on and either side next to you is like a 3000 foot drop. So I get to the top of that and I was like, are we done? And then all of a sudden I found out we had to keep going more. And I was just like, I, I can't do this. Anymore. <laughs> I'm not great with heights unless I'm in like a roller coaster or an airplane, like somewhere where I'm strapped in. So looking to the side, I was just like, I need to turn around. <laughs> yeah. That sounds scary. Maybe I'll have to pass on that one too. The, the ending is supposed to be like the most beautiful view that you can get pretty much anywhere in the continental us but um i'm gonna have to take my friend's words for it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so something else that i know you're very passionate about is cooking and i wanted to start off by asking what first got you into cooking in general sure so um honestly it was boredom um because you know as well as i do that ud winter breaks are extremely long so oh, yeah. I think that it was probably a situation where all my high school friends were back at college and I didn't really have much else to do. Um, and so I just kind of started finding recipes. I know I was really into the tasty cookbooks or cook tasty recipes from Buzzfeed. Um, and so I think I started off with some of those and I just started cooking for my family. Um, and I, of course, have to give credit to my mom. I always was in the kitchen with her growing up, doing little things, chopping veggies, stirring a pot, you know, so she definitely inspired up. And then, um, once I got to college, I really started learning to love it for myself as well. That's so different from the typical college experience where I feel like 90% <laughs> of people just regress and they're like, I am eating macaroni and cheese and microwavable chicken nuggets most of the time. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. Yeah. It was honestly for me. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. It was the complete opposite for me. Like when I got out of the dorm sophomore year, um, and moved into an apartment junior year. That's when I started cooking really for myself, not just what I think my family would like, but really like what I wanted to eat. And so that was kind of fun. It's very therapeutic for me too. It's, you know, with school, it was a time away from studying and classes and stuff to just kind of be in the kitchen and have a nice meal for myself. So. Yeah. I always like cooking as a little study break because mm -hmm. I need to eat to survive. So when I would take study breaks and I'm like playing video games or watching TV, I'm like, you know, I should really be studying or I should really be writing. <laughs> when I'm cooking, it's like, do I need to make something fancy right now? No, but I need to eat. So if I take a half an hour break, it's, it's not like it's time wasted. Exactly. You need to do it anyway. So that yeah. was always my rationale as well. Whatever we got to do to get through college, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then when did you transition to making a lot of the plant-based meals that you post about on your cooking Instagram page? Yeah. So that was also around my sophomore and junior year of college. Um, I first decided to go pescatarian. Um, and then a couple of years after that, I transitioned to being full vegetarian. So my, my Instagram, all the posts that I 
I have, it's kind of like my own personal digital cookbook, if you will. Um, I pull recipes from every which way, cookbooks, the internet, social media apps. And so it's like my place to have everything in one location. And then I really, I really do like sharing with family and friends because there will be people who text me like, oh, I tried this recipe and they'll send a picture. And that always warms my heart. Um, you know, it's not a popular Instagram page. I'm not, I'm not viral, but I, <laughs> yes. I think it's a nice place to share recipes for meat eaters and vegetarians alike. I really do think that there's something for everyone. And I know you've talked on the podcast about trying to participate in Meatless Monday or just trying to eat a little bit of less red meat. And so I, 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 I hope that somebody will try my recipes and be like, oh, this is good. And it just happens to not have meat in it. It's funny with, with, Cooking vegetarian meals, I always feel like the big mental block that people have is, oh, I could never give up meat. And I feel like half the time it's just because you're not cooking vegetables right then. Because <laughs> most of the time, like vegetables are so good if you know what you're doing. I mean, I'm not going to trash talk green beans too much because I've eaten a ton of them. But if all you're doing is steaming green beans and not putting any seasoning on it, yeah, it's going to be kind of boring. But there's so much you could do with so many vegetables and you know, using all the different flavors is a great way to make a really, really great meal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to agree. I mean, I know my mom, she hates asparagus and she's not a picky lady, but all her, her mother, my grandmother did was like boil them or steam them and just eat them like that. And so I've tried to get her to like them. I've done like garlic and lemon and Parmesan and I still haven't convinced her yet, but <laughs> that pains me. Asparagus <laughs> asparagus was probably my favorite vegetable for the past like four really? or five years. Yeah. We just throw it on the grill, a little bit of salt, a yeah. little bit of um, olive oil. And mm-hmm. I hate to admit it, but I think it's my number two favorite vegetable now. And shishito yeah, peppers might've right. bumped up to the one spot. Wow. Very nice. See, yeah. everyone puts their asparagus and, and love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've definitely screenshotted my fair share of uh, posts from your Instagram page. I have the oh, recipe yeah. saved. So... And you've actually, I remember you sent me a recipe from like the Food Network or something, that pizza. And I swear I still make that pizza. It's like my favorite pizza recipe. You probably don't even remember. I don't. I don't. But it's a roasted red pepper pesto. And oh it's my like gosh, yes. And red onions and arugula and, and like an herbed oil. I don't know. It's like all the good stuff on some dough. Mm. So that was probably last year because one of my various, like I need to be obsessed with something random for the next month or else I'm going to go crazy during the early stages of quarantine. I got into a really big pesto phase Mm -hmm. where I would just make like, I started of course with the basil pesto traditional. Then I switched out the pine nuts for pistachios and I was like, this is so good. And then I threw in some (laughs) red pepper and I just kept like making different batches of the same sauce and just never got tired of it. (laughs) good yeah and that's honestly the way to go because with pesto like pine nuts are so expensive and i don't know you can definitely alternate it and i i do not just only basil but with basil and spinach or basil parsley and spinach literally any green that's in my fridge i will throw into my pesto and it's always so good so yeah you you can't get tired of pesto (laughs) it's so good the only issue i have with it is uh god it sits on your breath sometimes if you put in too much garlic and if you're not putting in enough garlic then what's the point (laughs) so sometimes you just gotta sign up for i'm gonna have to brush my teeth twice tonight (laughs) yeah all right so moving on to a different topic i wanted to talk to you about proud which for people who didn't attend the university of delaware stands for puppy raisers of ud so how'd you get started with proud what did you do and what would you like to tell us about the organization Yeah, so PROUD is like an extension, if you will, of the seeing eye. Um, And that's based in my hometown in Morristown, New Jersey. So I knew about it even going, even before going into um, the University of Delaware. But what they do is um, the seeing eye raises puppies and train them to become guide dogs for the blind. Um, And so PROUD has puppy raisers. So UD students will raise a puppy from the time it's about six or eight weeks until it's about 16 months. Um, And then they go back to the seeing eye for their formal training and they get matched with their partner, um, a a blind person. And that person goes back to their home, wherever they are in in the country. um, And they have their seeing eye dog. 
So in, in proud, I, I never raised my own puppy, unfortunately, I never got to that level of time commitment. Um, but I was a puppy sitter, which honestly, I think is even better because you get all the, the joy of being around puppies, but not the full responsibility. Yeah. You're um, like the cool aunt. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so if a, if a razor had a lab class where puppies aren't allowed or like just had to study for a long period of time, they would ask a puppy sitter to puppy sit. And, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was really fun. Um, and it's a really good organization and proud, I think is only one of two universities. I think Rutgers is the only other university that, um, is able to have a club that raises puppies. So I think that's a pretty unique part of UD. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I didn't realize that. I was actually just about to say, and I'm sure that for anyone who's still in college, there's opportunities like this at your college, but maybe not. <laughs> maybe UD is just uh, that much better. <laughs> there is another organization on campus, and I'm sure there's more like this in other schools, but I forget the name of it, but they are, they raise puppies to become like, therapy dogs, I believe. Yeah. I know which one you're talking about. I also forget the name, but it was yeah. some, some other acronym. Yeah. Not as, not as catchy as proud if we don't remember it. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I know you also volunteered at St. Hubert's animal welfare center. So what did you do there? How'd you get started? What's your story? Yeah. So if you can't tell, I love dogs. <laughs> um, and so St. Hubert's, I was able to volunteer there during my summer and winter breaks at college. Um, and I was just a dog walker, but it was really rewarding because, you know, you see all these dogs behind cages and it, it's up to the volunteers. You know, the staff is way too busy with everything else they have going on to walk all these dogs. So the volunteers come, you can sign up for any shift, any time of the day, any hour, however short or long you want. And so I'd go a couple times a week, probably more than a couple actually, and um, just walk dogs for an hour or two. And it was really nice because you would see the same dog there a week and it was really sad. And then, and I would kind of grow attached to them. And then one day I'd show up and they'd be gone. And part of me was sad, but the other part of me was so excited because they found their forever home. So um, it was fun. I just got to walk dogs and they had like a fenced in area and you could play fetch with them. And it, it was a blast. <laughs> That's also just so rewarding. I mean, like you said, when you see that dog that you get an attachment to, it's not there anymore. You're like, damn, like I'm going to miss walking. Him or her. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it clicks and you're like, yes, this is, this is what we want. <laughs> yeah. I know we talk a lot on this show about wildlife conservation and other animal related stories. And this might not be conservation focused, but I think your time with Proud and your time with St. Hubert's are a really good foot in the door for people who might look into an animal-based career or I guess foot out the door if uh, you're taking the dogs for a walk, but I digress. We talked a lot about your past positions and a lot of cool experiences you have. What are you up to now? Sure. So I am currently a victim witness advocate at the Middlesex District Attorney's Office. So I'm living right outside Boston, Massachusetts. Not animal related, as you mentioned, but, you know, it's always good to have those hobbies in your free time. Um, and I've actually, um, I'm, I'm not going to be at that job anymore. I, I just recently accepted a, a new position. So starting in a few weeks, um, I'll be a case manager at a place called Housing Families, um, and they help families find permanent housing who are going. That's through. awesome. Congratulations. So, yeah. Thank are you. We, are we breaking it. news on the podcast? Um, to some people. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. <Wow. laughs> I've always wanted to break news. That's actually important. So this is cool. Congrats. I don't know how important I, this, this is, but thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> so what, what are you going to be doing there? Like, do you know kind of general ideas or? Um, I, I believe that I'll have a caseload of between like 15 to 30 families. And, and I, I'm generally aware, don't quote me on all this, but I, you know, I think they're trying to get to the root of the problem where, you know, some people are going through a um, mental health crisis or unemployment or addiction. So not just finding them homes, but um, helping them much further than that. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I haven't gotten the employee handbook yet, so I'm not sure exactly what every aspect of my job will entail, but generally that's, speaking, that's so cool. And that's so impactful. And I think you're going to get to sleep well at night, knowing that you're making a real positive difference on so many families. You're so sweet. Thank you. 
So we end all of our interviews with the same three rapid fire questions. You ready for them? I guess ready as ever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Number one, what is your favorite animal? All right. So I guess I can't say dog because that's a little too obvious. You guys already know that. But um, as as a kid, I would say I'd say a tiger. Sorry, I don't know if that was nice. rapid fire. But <laughs> the no, reason behind that we always is, mess up with the rapid fire. It's always like okay. rapid fire, and then it's like five minutes. So yeah, recurring theme. <laughs> but um, anyway, so yeah, I I remember being at a zoo with one of my childhood friends, and we saw this video about how like tigers were going extinct, and we were so so worried about it, and so we like got a bunch of stuff from the gift shop about tigers, and and I think we. It had like lemonade stands and, and donated the money or something. I don't know, but tigers are beautiful. So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> they definitely are a great choice. Thanks. Question two, what is something you do to try to be more sustainable in your own life? Sure. So I would say besides, um, you know, being vegetarian, um, I definitely try to reduce my plastic consumption. Um, so some ways I do that are the very typical, you know, reusable water bottles, metal straws, stuff like that. But other things that I do that aren't as common and it'd be, it'd be cool if, if other people, you know, were aware of it is um, like shampoo bars, conditioner bars that come in little tins, you know, and less plastic there. Reusable, not only grocery bags, but produce bags, you know, how you have like those yeah. little rolls. Yeah. Um, and then I have like silicone, covers instead of like plastic wrap and same thing with baggies. So yeah, definitely just, just that. And in my opinion, it's cheaper because you buy it once and you reuse it. You don't have to keep stocking up. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what I try to do. And I know yeah, that people are sure. like, people are like, sorry, it's probably too long. You can cut it out, but people are like, Oh, it doesn't matter because it's all big corporations who are contributing anyway. So like individual choices don't matter. But if I'm one less person, contributing to plastic going in our landfills and and our oceans, then I'll do it. Yeah. It's like good and great. Don't need to be enemies. Like it's great if we can get all these companies to cut down on their emissions because they are the biggest contributors to climate change, but it's also still good if we're not contributing to landfills. So we don't have to argue over that. Like we can advocate for them to cut their emissions while we are doing stuff in our own life. So yeah, I'm so with right. you. I agree hundred percent with you on that one. And last question, what is one environmental topic you think everyone should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Um, I don't know if this counts as an environmental topic, but the first thing that came to mind was back to the national park talk is there are so many things out there that aren't just national parks. So something that I want the listeners to do is go on nps.gov and find, um, if you just search on Google, find a park by state. There are so many things, national historical parks or national recreational areas or national monuments. And I think it's just a great learning experience. It's a great way to get outdoors. And I know a lot of people like, Oh, I don't, I don't live near a national park, which, you know, I don't either. The closest one is five hours away and all the rest are, you know, out West. So I think, you know, if if you're interested in, in NPS, there's definitely a lot more out there. So definitely check it out. Yeah. I can vouch for that too. I have camped in a national forest and it was, uh, one of my favorite camping experiences of my life. So, uh, shout out Kelty national forest, if you're ever in the California (laughs) area. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. If people want some ideas for some vegetarian meals or plant-based cooking or just cooking in general, where can they keep up with you? Yeah. If you need some inspiration, uh, my Instagram is crispy in the kitchen. There's underscores in between all those words to make it any, any less difficult. So crispy <laughs> underscore in underscore the underscore kitchen. <laughs> we will tag you in our Instagram post for this episode. That way people can just awesome. click. So if you're listening, don't even worry about searching. We will make it easy for you to do it and go give her a follow. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me, Matt. This is so much fun and uh, look forward to listening to it later. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for coming. This was a good time. And that'll do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio for our final episode of September. <laughs> this month is absolutely flying by. <laughs> it's insane that we're halfway through September already. It's almost impossible. Yeah, it's just fall, man. Fall is just my favorite season. I haven't even gotten like 
to go apple picking yet. Like, what the hell? I think I am doing that next weekend, weather permitting. So fingers crossed. Lucky guy. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We would also really appreciate it if you could share the show with a friend. We love getting new listeners. We love engaging with people on our social media posts and sharing that will help get some new eyes on the show, get some new ears listening to us. Works for everybody. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, send that to us too. If you have a guest you want us to have on, let us know and we can try to make it happen. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on another service, the reviews on Apple are going to help us grow the most. If you don't feel the show is worth five stars, let us know by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a suggestion in the comments. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Special thanks to Kristen Pruitt for her time on this episode. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.